0: Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Investing Sustainably, ESG in Emerging Markets, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jamie Kramer, Global Head of Strategic Product Management and ESG Lead for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Austin Foray. Portfolio Manager, Global Emerging Markets, Focus Strategy Within the Emerging Market and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Mark Ferguson, Head of Research for the Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities Team, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Austin Mark, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having us.
0: Austin, you recently published a white paper, Investing Sustainably. And you discussed why, in general, we think about ESG. Could you share with us today what ESG means to you and why it's important as an investor?
2: Sure. So I would say that for us, thinking about ESG is really about understanding whether a company can create value into the future for its shareholders. And obviously, we're acting as agents for our clients and they are the shareholders of businesses. So it's it's really important to them. And I think there's three simple reasons why we need to think about this. And the first is we, we as an industry can't ignore the wider consequences of our actions. You know, it's irrational for us to expect companies to act responsibly if the asset management industry won't do the same. So we have to think about the broader consequences of the choices that we make for clients. That leads on to the second thing, which is that it's important for our clients. You know, they want us to do this more and more. So we have to be responding to that and, and getting ahead of it. And thirdly, and this is really much 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 more important for me as an investor individually, I just think it's really consistent with taking a long-term approach to investing, which is something that I've always done.
0: Mark, you are the head of research and you are responsible for all the analysts in emerging market equity. Can you, from your perspective, um, share with us how you consider ESG factors when you're researching a company?
1: I would say just to build on the last point that Austin was making, I think ESG is extremely tied into simply having a strategic mindset in terms of how you think about businesses. So for our research process, we ask all of our analysts to come up with, as you would expect, financial forecasts for all the companies they look at. But we also ask them to come up with a strategic view on the quality of the business from the perspective of a longer-term shareholder. So we encourage them to think very hard about the real risks associated with investing in that business from a long-term perspective. When you get into that kind of strategic mindset, I think ESG just very naturally flows out of that. So as soon as you start thinking, about a business from a, a long-term perspective, you very naturally start thinking about whether the people are running the business in a sustainable way, whether we have confidence in management and the way that they alloc- allocate capital, whether we have confidence that we as minorities are well protected, et cetera, et cetera. So I think from our experience of, of building this out across a research team, w- once we got people into the right kind of strategic mindset, I think that the ESG considerations, in a sense, flowed very naturally from that.
0: And this is something that both of you have been doing for nearly... Nearly two decades with the firm, Mark, and almost three decades, Austin, on being the portfolio manager on this strategy. So this isn't something new for you. How maybe has it evolved? I think
2: the essence of what we're trying to do hasn't really changed. What has certainly changed is our business has got bigger. You know, I started off; we had a very embryonic emerging markets business, managed a few hundred million dollars. Today, our overall business, including Asia Pacific, is you know close to 100 billion. So. The scale of what we do has changed enormously and the number of people involved has changed. And as the team expands, you need to lay down kind of frameworks more. You need to get people to get into the same mindset. You know, when you're working with one other guy on a portfolio and you sit next to them, it's very easy. Everything just happens informally. When you have analysts around the world, and Mark can say more about this, but you know, we have analysts in many locations, we have several dozen analysts. You need to say to them, this is what we need you to be doing.
0: To that point, is there a formal framework that you use?
1: Yeah, so this is something we've built up. So I've been doing the head of research job since 2010. And over that period, we've built out the team to a fairly large extent. So I think we had about a dozen analysts probably in the team. Back then, we have 33 analysts looking at stocks within EMAP today covering over 950 stocks. So as Austin says, it's very important in such a big team that you do have a very clear framework. And I think Austin likes to describe it as we're trying to institutionalise the way that he's always thought about stuff. So we're trying to make sure that the rest of the team is is doing stuff in the way that was in his mind anyway for the prior decades. So we've sought a, a couple of specific tools. So we have a tool called a, a strategic classification. So this is, to some extent, what I was referring to earlier. For each business that we invest in, the, the analyst has to come up with a view as to how attractive... The business is from a strategic perspective. And we have a a bit of framework and detail around that. And then the second thing we asked the analysts to do is to fill in this 98 question checklist. I'm I'm
0: sorry, you said 98? 98 questions,
1: yes. So what we did, and, and this is back in around about 2012, I think we brought this in, we kind of all sat down and we thought about Common risks which recur in the companies that we look at and again from the perspective of a, a long-run shareholder in the business What are the things that we that in our experience typically go wrong for all the companies we look at? So we, we kind of put all of our heads together accumulated experience, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, we came out with ninety-eight. Are there
0: certain categories like three or five categories that those questions fall into and how often are they formally filling them out?
1: So the 98, 74 of them are related to ESG in some form or another. So if you think about that, we're, we're saying that of all of the things that might go wrong with a business from a long-term perspective, let's say three-quarters of the ones we can think of are one way or another related to ESG. And more than half of the total is specifically on governance. When you start thinking about governance factors, there's just all sorts of issues that can go wrong. And we can, we can come back and talk about that in more detail with examples. So we tend to think of a business from a strategic perspective in terms of the economics of the business the duration or sustainability of it, and then the governance. And within duration, social environmental factors fairly naturally fit into that as well. So uh, a lot of the risk factors related to duration are related to social considerations to do with whether it's tax, cybersecurity, product safety, labor relations, etc., environmental issues, pollution. And
0: how does that translate into either cash flows or future earnings forecasts?
1: In a sense, there's two parts of the, the analyst's job. The first part is to just is more explicit forecast for the next few years as to what the the economics of the business are, which in a sense is a more conventional analyst role and then I think the second part is to really think in, in slightly more abstract terms about what might go wrong in the future, and the checklist and the strategic classification are all much more geared towards that, so I think it it translates a lot into sometimes into cash flows in, in the next few years, but quite often just in terms of how attractive we think the business is and the kind of multiple we're prepared to pay on that business. So I would say in a, in a sense that for every stock that we look at, we have to forecast some cash flows, but then we have to think about how confident we are in those cash flows into the future and therefore what multiple we're prepared to pay on those cash flows. And I think the latter part of that in particular is very informed by these kind of risks that we've been talking about.
0: Somewhere in one of your publications, I read the companies with more red flags or warning signals on these factors tend to underperform over time. So Austin, the question for you as the lead portfolio manager, do you use the research input to size the positions of the portfolio or how do you engage with the research analyst in terms of understanding the red flags and how you engage with and if and when you engage with companies?
2: I think it's important to say I don't use it mechanistically. You know, I don't have hard rules about 17 red flags is a no, 16 is still okay. Partly because in our minds, when we built up this list of questions was the intention to get analysts to think about the hierarchy of risks. And a lot of what we're trying to get out with a checklist is stuff you can't screen for. A lot of it's around management behavior. A lot of it's around risks which are very infrequent but very serious if they happen. And you know, you can't screen for something that doesn't happen for 20 years and then happens once and bankrupts a business. Can you give
0: us an example?
2: Actually, in some cases, the examples that come to mind most easily are not necessarily emerging market ones. I mean, if you take something like the Volkswagen emissions scandal recently, you know, that's something you can't screen for that kind of thing. You know, a company doesn't have an emissions scandal every six months, so there's no data history. You have to be thinking about what kind of management is going on here? What kind of culture exists in the firm? What kind of you know, risks are they ready to run in the business, et cetera, et cetera? And, and you won't have evidence. You've got to exercise your judgment. So the checks is really trying to get analysts to exercise their judgment about things like that. And we've had stuff in, certainly we've had stuff in emerging markets. I mean, I remember meeting a company once, and you will think this is a trivial and, and sort of silly example. But it was a company involved in the watch business. And in the meeting, I noticed that the chief executive and founder wore two watches, one on each hand. And I thought, that's a bit odd. You know, that's a bit strange. And as the meeting went on, it seemed to me that he was actually very interested in having a passport into a certain lifestyle, which selling very expensive watches gave him. He was rather less interested in, you know, astutely managing the cash flows of the business. And somewhere in the back of your mind, you file away that little piece of information. It doesn't tell you that something's going to go wrong. But going into the financial crisis in 2008, they made a an acquisition funded with short-term debt. They were bust in six months.
0: And so do you think that it's important as a long-term investment manager to meet companies, to go on site, to yeah, have discussions?
2: Essential. I mean, as a team, we would do... Probably upwards 5,000 plus. Yeah, 5,000 5,000 meetings a year.
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: On site? Not all on site. I mean, companies come to London, they come to New York. You know, we see them in Hong Kong and Singapore, um, but we also travel on site. And, and for myself, I would say, you know, my preference is always to go and see a company. If you go to a big conference or something, or if they come to our offices, you know, we have an hour in a meeting room. Getting on site tells you... You just pick up all that kind of peripheral vision stuff. Is the place tidy? And are there you know, people sitting around who don't appear to care, all that sort of the thing. The employees
0: smiling. Exactly.
2: Are they are they smart? <laughs> do they look oppressed and beaten down? You know, all that sort of stuff. So we do a lot of that.
0: Now, you mentioned um, a developed company. Are there different risks? Um, so scandals obviously occur in both developed and emerging market companies. But are there certain ESG risks that you believe are magnified in emerging markets versus developed Equities.
1: Yeah, I think my general comment would be that the range of corporate quality is wider and more persistent in emerging markets than it is in the developed world. So I think in a market like the US, if there's a business where the management is underperforming, then usually there's some mechanism in place that ultimately they will be replaced, whether through takeover or through shareholder pressure, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. In many emerging markets, that's not the case i.e. there are a lot of, whether it's state-owned companies or family-owned companies or or companies for various reasons, unlikely to change the the nature of the business. And therefore, we do have examples where governance and the quality of management can matter enormously and that this can persist over very long periods of time, which I think is probably to a greater extent in in emerging markets than you get in developed markets. I'd say in terms of specific issues, and Austin, will probably want to add to various, but certainly state ownership is a persistent issue. Capital allocation is a big, a big issue, particularly in some markets like Korea. Corporate maturity is an issue, I think, in markets like China. Maybe is a good example Russia of that. As well, Russia, the Russia political risks, oligarchs, etc. So, so there are slightly different issues in different emerging markets. But I think that probably the the magnitude of the issues and the extent of the variance amongst companies. I would imagine is larger than it is in the developed world.
0: So when you find a business that you like at the core, but there's some governance or some issue, how would you advise on effective engagement? And do these companies listen?
2: It varies. I mean, you know, if you look back over the last 20 years, there are some companies that have evolved enormously. I mean, One of my biggest investments is a company, an Indian company, which frankly, 25 years ago, their capital allocation wasn't great. Now there was a big fiscal incentive for them to keep issuing equity. And I remember having a conversation with them in the 90s when we said to them, look, you know, this isn't great for the share price. And they stopped doing it. Now, whether they stopped doing it because we talked to them is impossible to say. But companies ultimately all tend to have the same sorts of objectives in terms of wealth creation, unless they are state owned, in which case they may have much broader social objectives you know, employment creation, you know, infl- suppressing inflation, all that kind of stuff. But you find that some companies are very keen to engage. And other companies don't really want to listen. But unless you go and talk to them, you won't know which is which.
1: Yeah, and I would say sometimes the answer to that is a bit surprising. So, for example, we had a good engagement with a a Russian oil company around issues to do with pollution recently, and you wouldn't naturally think they would be at the forefront of, of, of these kind of issues. But actually we engaged with them and we got a very thoughtful response, which I would say raised our opinion of the seriousness of the company in that case. But then, like Austin says, there are other examples where... We try our best, but they still don't seem that interested. And as you would expect, we typically wouldn't be very predisposed to investing in those kind of businesses.
2: Yeah, actually, Mark makes a very good point, because one of the issues, things we find through engagement is you learn more about the company and about the quality of the management and the business. And and companies that take ESG issues seriously generally tend to take everything else seriously too. And it's actually a pretty good indicator. You know, if you ring up a company you go and talk to a company and they say, well, here is our policy about gender equality in the workforce, or here is our performance in kind of recycling water for for reuse, et cetera, et cetera, then you can tell it's a business that's actually thinking pretty seriously about all the details of what it does. Whereas when you come across a company that says, well, no, we don't really recycle, we don't really care if we use coal-fired power to generate the power for our operations, we don't really care about our emissions, et cetera, chances are they don't really care about very much either beyond that. So it's a very good indicator, in my experience, of corporate quality in a kind of deep operational sense, which is often quite hard to see into from the outside.
0: So it sounds like ESG and the way you approach long-term research, this is very integrated into what you do as portfolio managers, as research analysts. So there's a question that we get internally and externally on does ESG, is it about risk control or alpha generation? And in listening to you, it's hard to pull the two apart.
2: Yeah, I mean, my answer that is both. And in fact, they are the same thing. You could talk about downside protection, but clearly if you don't own businesses that the half, you're going to do better than the average. And I think to Mark's earlier point, when you get very long run persistent differences in behavior, you get businesses compounding at different rates for a very long time. That gives you enormous alpha opportunities, but as long as you own the right one. So you know, risk protection, downside protection, alpha, I think they're just the same thing.
1: We do actually have some data on this. So, so the checklist we've been running for almost five years, and as I say, it's a 900 plus company sample size. So we have a, a reasonably decent sample size. The data we have so far, so if you quintile everything, the quintile of the, the top 20% with the lowest red flags, i.e. the highest quality ones, have outperformed by about 2 or 3% a year. The bottom quintile, i.e. the worst ones, have underperformed by about 6% a year on the data we have. So I would say that suggests the answer is both, but particularly on the downside. So i.e. as an avoid or downside protection thing, I would say so far the evidence we have is it's a bit stronger on that side than it is on the, the positive side for the very best companies. And the top stocks have outperformed as well. It's just that the magnitude of outperformance is less than the magnitude of underperformance of the worst ones.
0: When I took over this role as ESG lead about a year ago, and I've known Austin and followed the strategy for quite a while and approached you knowing or believing that you are very much ESG integrated, which means that you embed ESG risk factors, as you can tell from this conversation, throughout the entire investment process. But I think it's really key to state that you do not limit your investment universe. So you will buy a company... It has some sort of risk, either E, S, N or G, if you feel that either the price of the stock has r- significantly reflected that or that the company is willing to change, that is true. You're not limiting or throwing out any particular securities. Austin, is there anything that you would not own in the portfolio?
2: Well, there's certainly stocks I find it very hard to contemplate owning in the portfolio. As an investor, you don't want to say, never say never, is, a, is a, perhaps a good maxim. But on the other hand, there's businesses I think are fundamentally so unattractive that I can't really see them ever being priced so cheaply that I think we want to own them. And, and I think there are companies that create no intrinsic value for their shareholders at all in the long run. Quite a lot of them, actually. But what we don't do is have kind of hard rules. So we don't have a rule that says, you know, if a company gets 16 red flags on our checklist, then it's a no, and if it's 15, then it's fine you have to have much more judgment involved and you have to think about materiality. And I think you also have to recognize that, you know, things go wrong in the world. I mean, I'll give you a good example of a very big, very well-known company, arguably the most successful company built in emerging markets in the last 30, 40 years, which would be Samsung Electronics. And I think there's a couple of issues there. They've had product safety issues. You know, we all have heard about the Galaxy Note and not being able to take it on airplanes. And... You know, companies get things wrong. And what matters very often is their response to that, not the fact they made a mistake in the first place. And, you know, Samsung and and indeed corporate career in general, I think, has some big governance challenges. There have been corruption scandals in Korea. So we're constantly engaging with these kind of companies and saying, why can't you do this and why can't you do that? And interestingly, Samsung Electronics, of which we have been a shareholder for a long, long time, came to us earlier this year specifically to talk about capital allocation, dividend policy? How can we give the shareholders more of what they want? And this is going on at the same time that they're dealing with both a corruption scandal and a product quality issue in one of their you know, mainstream products. So it's not a simple single issue situation that you're dealing with. And, and you know, no company is setting out to do things badly. I mean, everyone's trying to do things well. But if you don't engage with them, and particularly if you say, well, one issue here, and then it's off the radar as far as I'm concerned as an investor, then I think you're narrowing your opportunity set, uh, you know, very unnecessarily.
0: So I suppose that is one of the reasons that active management works so well in the emerging market.
2: Well, I think there's lots of opportunity there. And yes, I mean, you're right. The kind of judgments we've been talking about, I don't think you can outsource to a computer program. And indeed, the whole point, I think, of acting responsibly and sustainably as an investor is there has to be you know, judgment involved, there has to be human interaction. And while we don't want to narrow the universe, we are ultimately trying to pick to form a, a portfolio of our best ideas. We're not just going to buy everything. So yes, I agree with you.
0: Why do certain investors integrate ESG, like yourselves, but they don't want their funds to be labeled ESG?
2: Well, I think the reason we've never put the label on is because we were doing it before the label was widely you know, used or understood. So. as we said earlier, we've really been managing investments in the same way for more than 20 years. And 20 years ago, you didn't have ESG-labeled funds. In fact, I think they were called socially responsible or SRI investing back then. But the labels keep changing. The investment process we use hasn't changed. So that was one of the reasons why we never had it on there, because I think we were really doing it before it became very high profile. I think the other point to make is that there's a difference between integrating your consideration of all this, as Mark has spoken about, into your research process, which is what we've tried to do, and having a, a more crusading or explicit set of objectives. You know, there's also ethical investing, where people want you to exclude certain things, as it were, on more moral grounds. There's impact investing, where you're you know, trying to have very deliberate impact on the real world. Now, we'll work with clients when they want us to have specific exclusions. And we have a variety of clients around the world who will specifically say, you can't invest in this sector, we don't need to invest in this particular list of businesses. And, you know, we're flexible and we're very happy to work with clients on those things. I think it's much more difficult when we interpose our own moral judgments and, and force them on everybody, whether our clients actually want that or not.
0: And so the goal of the portfolio is to outperform in the long run for our clients?
2: Yeah, the goal of the portfolio is to deliver good investment returns, taking risks that our clients find acceptable and behaving in a responsible way, both as a manager and, you know, for our clients in terms of what they are comfortable with.
0: So as a firm, we've introduced for overall risk control and measurement, engaging with third-party ESG data. And I know we spend a significant amount of resources. You said you have dozens of equity research analysts? 33. 33. 33. So we use this third-party data to check and for our investment directors and our risk managers to see where, as a firm and as down to the strategy level, we have specific risks in the portfolio. And this has been introduced over the last year. Can you, either of you share in these conversations when we have a very different opinion than a third-party ESG risk provider and why that might be?
1: Yeah, but I'll just make a couple of general comments about how we use third parties and then Austin might want to add. We we obviously look at the third party data and often it might highlight issues that we haven't considered or thought about beforehand. On the other hand, we're never going to outsource the final judgment to a third party in the same way that we don't outsource final judgments to our own internally SG people. So our mindset or our view has always been that these kind of judgments are at the very core of the research process and at the very core of the responsibilities of our analysts in terms of how they add value. So if we see something from a third party, particularly if it's highlighting a potential risk in a stock which we which we own or which we, we generally like, then of course we'll, we'll show it to the analyst, the analyst will think about it, will go away, will decide whether they agree or disagree, whether there's any new information there from their perspective.
2: I completely agree with the point about you, you can't outsource the responsibility. And, you know, I never want to be in a situation where I'm sitting in front of a client and he says, why did you do this? And I say, well, I did this because this third party provider told me not to. And it turned out that they were wrong or that, you know, actually it would have been a fantastic investment or or, or something like that. So we, we can't outsource the responsibility. I think the other issue that arises with third party providers is that. To some extent, you know, we use them both in terms of ESG sort of screening, and we also take some in terms of proxy voting direction or, or suggestions. Uh, and again, we we make the decisions about how we vote shares for our clients. But one of the issues is there's no consistent methodology. You know, everyone has their own way of doing it, and not all of them are absolute. Some of them are done relative to an industry or relative to a sector or something like that. So there's no kind of consistent way of doing it, which means that you can't use them mechanistically And I think also, you know, sometimes we just disagree with it. You know, we've had instances where we've been advised to vote the founder off the board of the company they founded. And I think to some extent there's often a conflict, and this goes back to something Mark mentioned earlier, between what I might rather crudely call a kind of first world view of governance and the reality in the developing world. So in the West, certainly in the UK, here in the UK, in the US I think as well, you know, you have dispersed institutional ownership of businesses. And a lot of the governance attention is focused on regulating the behavior of management and making sure that they're not essentially profiting at the expense of shareholders. Now, when you've got someone who owns 55% of a company they founded 40 years ago, you know, frankly it doesn't matter how many non-executive directors you have because they got 50% five percent of the votes. So they can do whatever they like. And therefore you need to be really engaged with the people who are ultimately the decision makers. And in that situation, we have to look at what really happens, not at the kind of pattern or the the, the formulaic way of doing things. You know, a non-executive director can't give you that much protection when one guy has more votes than all the other shareholders put together. And voting the founder off the board of a business they founded and have run successfully doesn't seem to us to be really in the interest of the shareholders. So sometimes we just disagree. And in that case, we'll make our decisions. So they're an input, but they're certainly not a a mechanistic way by which we make our decisions.
0: Okay. Well, Austin and Mark, I'd like to personally thank you. Any closing thoughts that you would leave the listeners with today?
2: I think we just need to bear in mind the responsibilities that our clients entrust us with their money. And we've just got to be, that's a really serious responsibility. And we have to think about all that implies. And ultimately, you know, I want, if you're a client, then I don't want you to wake up one morning and think, my God, they invested in that And we've got to find ways of of getting it right for you. Mark?
1: I would say that ESG has been a core part of the way we think about companies from, I think, before the term became fashionable, and it will continue to be so in the future.
0: Yeah, it's about creating a really strong brand. The intangibles about what goes into a company in the long run. And I think that the way that you invest money really exemplifies how at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, we are trying to make ESG part of the culture. So not just a label, as you mentioned, but really something that we're doing every day, from the analysts and their research to the portfolio managers to the risk managers. And so I'd like to thank you for having this discussion, and thank you for managing a great strategy. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on JPMorgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and our website. If you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. Recorded on July 12, 2017.
3: The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks – The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management UK Limited which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in other European jurisdictions by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL in Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited in Singapore by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited CoReg number 197601586K or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited co-reg number 201120355E in Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited in Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan the Japan Investment Advisors Association Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Inc., and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.